0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given throughout the area. Today's show features Tim Staples and his talk, Matrimony and Holy Orders, recorded at the Gift of Faith Conference in June 2010. And now, Tim Staples. Thank you very much, and let's begin with prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, once again, we are in awe at the thought that you have gifted us so greatly beyond all that we could ever imagine or ever think. To think that before the foundation of the world you called us you chose us as Jesus said in John chapter 15 think not that you've chosen me I have chosen you from all eternity you called us you chose us heavenly father we pray for the grace we pray for the fortitude to choose you we ask this through Christ our Lord as we pray together in our family prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Holy Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom, St. Joseph. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Paul, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, when I was asked to do a talk on holy orders and holy matrimony, I was like, wow, that is a large task to do in a short period of time. There's lots of different ways we could do it. But I thought that I would do it perhaps in a little different way than maybe you would expect. I wanna talk less about theory and more about practicality concerning these two great sacraments. And this is how we're gonna do it. I'm gonna use um, what I was taught by a little Franciscan nun by the name of Sister Paula Jean when I was at Mount St. Mary's. If Father Mancini was here, he may he would probably know who I'm talking about. I'm sure Father Tregilio, What are they doing? Hearing confession still? Yeah? Those holy priests. Um, but I'm going to share with you something that revolutionized my thinking years before I would ever get married. In fact, when I was not even considering marriage, I was in the seminary studying for the priesthood. But it would revolutionize my thinking concerning marriage, holy matrimony, as well as holy orders. And it's rooted in, as I said, Sister Paula Jean was a a moral uh, theology professor at Mount St. Mary's. And absolutely brilliant. But she approached things very much from the perspective of the great Franciscans, uh, St. Bonaventure in, in particular. But... She really revolutionized my thinking in this respect. Now, when we talk about sacraments in general, the sacraments are, you know, to speak generally, our participation in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Amen? All right. Are you all allowed to say amen here? Yeah? All right. Just checking. All right. <laughs> no. She said, no, we're not allowed. Oh. See? The, the sacraments are our participation. And you know, and if we, we talk about baptism, it's so obvious to see how baptism is our participation in the death of the Lord so that we experience his resurrected life, right? We quoted earlier, when I talked about baptism, Romans 6.3. We're buried together with him through baptism so that, as, uh, so that we may walk in newness of life as Christ walks in newness of life. So you know, we could go through all the sacraments and see how that each one of the sacraments in a particular way is our participation in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But as we were learning this, I think... Now, now you you know I wasn't married back then, all right? I was a seminarian. But this was my thinking. You know, when you go to a wedding, my gosh, this is like, come on, ladies, this is the day in your life, right? I mean, this is... Wow, it's so glorious and it's wonderful. You don't really think about it being a participation in crucifixion. You know, in the death of the Lord, right? But of course, once you get actually married, ah, (laughs) ah, (laughs) now I understand. But (laughs) but at any rate, St. Augustine famously taught that Christ on the cross gave himself bodily to his bride, right? This is something that's not just St. Bonaventure and the Franciscans. It goes back, St. Augustine comes to mind immediately as, as I said, uh, teaching that. And you'll find that throughout. But one thing Sister Paula Jean brought out, and I have since found it in other doctors and fathers as well, but one thing that she brought out is, is that not only does Christ give himself bodily in a a nuptial relationship with his bride, the church on the cross, but where did the ratification take place, right? Now, let's back up here and do a little theology of marriage. You and I understand that marriage, just like all of the sacraments, has both a material and formal aspect, right? Form and matter. We could could say a spiritual as well as a material component, right? Baptism. We talked about form, words, spiritual component. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you also have the stuff of the sacraments, right? All sacraments. Now, what about marriage? What is the matter versus the form? Well, Jesus gives himself... In a bodily way, in a material sense, right? He gives his body to his bride on the cross. Where did he give himself to? What, where is the spirit? I'm about to jump down there, but uh, where is the spiritual component? In the Garden of Eden. Uh, Garden of Eden. Garden of Gethsemane. Wake up, Tim. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is what sister, she- oh, my goodness. I tell you, if I'd have been a Pentecostal in them days, I'd have been shouting right in the middle of seminary class. Hallelujah! But she shared that Jesus becomes, if you will, married to his bride, the church. His, his marriage is ratified. You and I understand, right? When I was at the altar in, in, on August 26th of 2000 with my beautiful wife, Valerie, when we exchanged vows, right, that marriage in the presence of an official minister of the church, because as Bishop Sheen said, when you get married, it's three to get married, right? It's God who joins you together, but it's the couple, we say in our Latin theology, that confects the sacrament, right? It's in that exchange of vows, in the presence of the minister, that the, the, the marriage is ratified, It will later be consummated when you join in the conjugal act. And the graces, similar to baptism and confirmation, the graces received at the ratification are increased and perfected at the consummatum, right? Just a little bit of review on sacramental theology with regard to marriage. Well, Christ presents to us the ultimate model. And I would argue here not only for marriage but also for holy orders because priests are married amen even the celibate ones they're married to the church amen as archbishop fulton sheen used to say you know i've heard him say it multiple times but he was joking with a married friend of his he said you know what i can kiss your bride you can't kiss mine <laughs> <laughs> right because he's he's married to the bride of Christ, which is the church, but both holy matrimony and holy orders represents a type of marriage. Amen? So this is crucial. This principle... Man, I'm getting Holy Ghost goosebumps already. Because this principle that I'm going to share with you that was imparted to me by Sister Paula Jean can revolutionize your marriage. And any priests that are in here, that's right, in the back, it can revolutionize... (laughs) Your priesthood as well, although these guys are so brilliant, they already know everything. Anyway, but here's the the point. Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where his, the ratification of his union with his bride uh, occurs. Now, i got to pause here for my apologist friends out here. This is not dogmatic Catholic teaching. You will read of different fathers and doctors talking about how Christ... Ratified his union in the incarnation, in the kenosis, in the self emptying of himself. So, this isn't something that's infallibly defined by the church. There are different ways of looking at, at sacramental uh, theology. Are y'all with me? All right. But this is a particular way of looking at, at the, the sacraments of holy matrimony and holy orders. Now, Christ, let, go with me, y'all, and get ready. To Mark chapter 14, verse 36. We're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You all know the story. Jesus says the first Mass. He walks out into the Garden of Gethsemane. He collapses in absolute agony. The agony in the Garden. And in this incredible prayer that we can only imagine. We can only attempt to imagine the agony that Christ was in. He prays in Mark 14, 36, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. This is one of the great mysteries of our faith. What in the world is going on here? Now, number one, when Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done, was was the will of Jesus contrary to the will of the Father? Please say no. (laughs) Yes, that's right. That would be impossible by virtue of the hypostatic union. It's impossible for Christ's will to be contrary to the Father's, even his human will. It's impossible. See, Mary can't say that. Nobody can say that other than Christ. Because of the hypostatic union, Christ already had the beatific vision from the moment of his conception. Think about that one for a while. But at any rate, the point is, That no, his will was not contrary to the Father's ever at any point. However, Christ was there in the Garden of Gethsemane experiencing to the fullest extent his humanity. He was fully man. Amen? And as such, oh Lord, y'all get ready. This is good. Now, by the way, some of you might have been bothered by what I say. What do you mean? It wasn't impossible for Mary. No, we make a radical distinction between Christ and Mary. Christ's will was directed toward the good at all times. Mary's was not. Mary never sinned, but hers was a negative gift, not a positive gift. In other words, God preserved her free from all sin. Christ, positively, in every action. In fact, in the Gospel, uh, Jesus says his will is always and only to do the Father's will. It's only Jesus... Every single look at it this way in John 5 19, he says, The son can do nothing except that which he sees the father do. Is anybody else getting excited about this or just me? <laughs> what he sees, notice Jesus didn't have faith, he had knowledge. Amen. Did you know that? Jesus did not have faith, he had knowledge. That's why in John 11, when remember when Lazarus had died. And Jesus goes to pray. He says, Father, I know you hear me always, but I'm praying so that these might believe. Amen? Amen. Jesus had knowledge. They had faith. That's an important point to remember. I just Somebody might have needed to hear that, all right? But let's get back over here to the garden. Christ, however, was fully man, fully God. 100%, 100%. Remember, he can be 200% because he's God. He can do that. Fully God, fully man. And as man, now this is going to be real important for marriage here, just in a minute, all right? As man, he did not wake up in the morning of Good Friday and say, oh, I can't wait. Bring on the nails. Bring on the nails, right? <laughs> hurry up, hurry up. No, why? Because you and I know, in fact, the, the basis of our moral theology is we have five natural inclinations. One of those natural inclinations that's the root of, of all of our moral theology is a natural uh, inclination towards self-preservation. That's a good thing. Amen? I mean, that's the thing that says, fire over here. I think I'm going to go this way. right? <laughs> Show me somebody that says, fire, good. And I'm going to tell you somebody you need to restrain. All right? Jesus had the gift of self-preservation just as we do. And so Christ prayed really and truly as one who is fully human. Father, if it be possible, it is not my desire. It's not on the first thing of my to-do list to have nails through my hands and feet. If it be possible, let this go pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. At that moment, Christ had to transcend his human nature. He had to transcend it in the sense that even a perfect human nature doesn't want to do that. Amen. But by grace, how many of you know Jesus needed grace in his humanity? Raise your hand real high. Amen. If you're afraid to go ahead. He did. Jesus in his humanity needed grace to empower him to transcend even a perfect human nature. You say, give me Bible verses. Well, here's one Remember in Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, at the finding in the temple? Remember when mama finds Jesus after three days looking for him? Can any moms uh, kind of, uh, yeah, three days. And what does she say? Where have you been? All right, now, she didn't say it exactly like that. <laughs> As a good Jewish mama, she said, no, you're not. we were looking for you with much sorrow. And Jesus says, no, you're not. It'd be about my father's business. Or as some translations say, in my father's house. Even though oikon's not in the Greek text, that's kind of taking a little liberty there. Nevertheless, he's in his father's house. Amen? Right? But what does Mary say? Mary, now, I'm, I'm going to take a little liberty with the text here. Here's the Tim Staples version of what Mary said. You know what Mary said? Get your tail home right now. <laughs> you know And what did Jesus say? Yes, Mom. And the Bible says in verse 51 and 52 of Luke chapter 2, he was obedient to his parents. He went home with them. He was obedient uh, to his parents. And thus he grew in grace and age and wisdom before God and man. He grew in grace. In fact, he would grow in his entire life. Now, Thomas Aquinas points out, Jesus did not grow in the sense of moving from imperfection to perfection as if he lacked any perfection. But he grew in the sense, St. Thomas quotes John 1.16 that tells us that it is out of his fullness that you and I receive grace upon grace. Can I say that again? It is out of the fullness, pleroma in Greek, out of the superabundance of His fullness, that grace flows out from Him to all of us. Amen? Amen? So when Christ grew in grace, when He experienced the womb, when He experienced childhood, when He experienced obeying His parents, when He experienced, He sanctified every single human action. Amen? And as such, He becomes not just a model for us, But the Catechism of the Catholic Church says his obedience becomes a substitution for our disobedience. But not in a Calvinist... Oh man, we're getting heavy here. Are you all ready for this? Not in a Calvinist or Lutheran sense to where he obeyed so I don't have to. You all with me? But by grace, his obedience becomes ours when we submit to his grace, cooperate with his grace, and obey. All right, hang on there for a second. (gasps) Oh, this is going to be too good, I'm telling you. I wish I was sitting out there with you all right now. <laughs> <'Cause this> is... <laughs> all right, listen now. See, so Christ, obeyed. he grows in grace. Now, hang on to that, because we're going to get to Hebrews 5 in a moment, in a verse that's going to blow your mind. Now, let's get back into the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ had to transcend his humanity in order to go to the cross to which his humanity naturally did not want to go. But there's so much more to it than that. Because you and I know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not only have to transcend his human nature because of its natural inclination not to like nails, but he also... Can you believe... The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us... Where is that? Right around paragraph 474, 475. The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, saw each one of us. He saw and experienced every one of our sins. Jesus did... I'm going I'm to shout something right here that's real important. Can you all repeat this after me? Jesus did not die for humanity. Can you say that? Jesus did not die for humanity. It drives me crazy. You know why? Because Jesus did not die for an abstraction, an abstract concept. He died for you. Amen? Amen. See? The Catechism of the Catholic Church quotes at this point Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where St. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for not for an abstraction. Jesus died for you. He saw you, and not just in His divinity, in His humanity. He died, He saw each one of us, and He experienced in some mystical sense that transcends our ability to comprehend. He experienced the pain of a 100 million abortions. He experienced the pain of all the rapes and the murders and the lies, every sin. My friends, this is why Christ Prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and St. Luke records his sweat dropped, as it were, drops of blood. Do you know there is a, a medical condition? to where I'm, I'm going to toss this out to some of the men here. Where's my boxer friend? There he is. All right, let me see if you remember. There was a bodybuilder back in the 70s named Tom Platts. Do you remember that name? Tom, I knew he would know him. Tom Platts was a freak of nature. He had legs. Just abnormal. I, this guy, he, he was a bodybuilder. He used to put a 1,000 pounds on his back and do deep squats. Now, by the way, folks, that's not normal. <laughs> and I don't recommend it to anybody. Right? But they say that he would, when he was squatting, he would be screaming. And, and by the time he was so intense in his workout, by the time he was done, there would be blood in his eye. He would literally pop capillaries in his eyes. Folks, that isn't close to the intensity of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't popping capillaries in his eyes, but in his skin to where drops of blood. Folks, we can't even fathom the, the level of agony that Christ experienced. He took upon himself all of our sins in the garden, that's what he saw. That adds to the agony. But Christ had to, by grace. And here's a very important verse for y'all Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. (laughs) I'm having too much fun. It says Christ, though he was a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal life to all those who would obey him. Close quote. And you might want to add Hebrews 2.10, which also says, It became him for whom were all things, of whom were all things, to whom were all things, to perfect the author of our salvation through suffering. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call you and I brethren. Because he suffered with us. Are you all with me? Now, now, both of those verses mention something that sounds crazy. Christ was perfected? Didn't we just say? How, what, what, what? Jesus can't be perfected, right? But we already said, didn't we? Not in the sense of moving from imperfection to fre- perfection. Are you all with me? But rather, this is that sense that Thomas talks about of him moving from glory to glory, and out of the abundance of his fullness and his overcoming the various obstacles that even a perfect human nature has to overcome, he is perfected in that sense, and the grace flows out to you and I. Are you all following me? All right, this is real important that you get here. Because ultimately, the ultimate example of that is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, let's just sum up, because we've got to get to the consummation here. Let's just sum up our thought right here on this point by saying this. When Christ saw all of our sins, experienced that agony beyond anything you and I can fathom. I mean, this would lead to him making that famous, uh, one of the seven sorrows that he expressed on the cross, right? He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, folks, do we as Catholics believe at that moment that God turned his back on Jesus? Please say, no, we're not Calvinists, right? Of course, John Calvin taught what's, taught what's called what's called uh, penal substitutionary atonement, which basically teaches that Christ was reprobated for you and I. That's nuts. No. He became a sacrifice for our sins, but he was never, you read guys like Jonathan Edwards, you know, they'd say, God, the father, looked at the son in utter disgust and hatred, and oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> No, that's wrong. What is really going on? The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that at that moment, Christ is so identified with us. He sees our sins. He experiences the pain and the agony of our sins that He can say in our place, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.